0: Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Greetings. He who will one day return to the house, and he will enter in through Jerusalem's eastern gate, the Golden Gate. It's closed now. I saw it just the other day, completely bricked up and stopped up. It's kind of an ironic symbol of what will come to be. Uh, All the other gates are open, but the Golden Gate, which is on a hill facing east, Towards the Mount of Olives closed. It's closed now, but one day it will be open again. Can we say amen? Amen. In fact, Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem. As God chose Mary to be blessed more than all other women, to be the mother of the Savior of the world, God has chosen a city and a country above all others to honor. Amen? Amen? But it wasn't always so honorable or so special living in jerusalem many times throughout history jerusalem has been sacked and has been burned and its inhabitants have been taken captive psalm 137 is a psalm i can hardly even think about reading without getting emotional i'll try not to get too emotional but in psalm 137 it says by the rivers of babylon we sat down yea and we wept as we remembered Zion. I didn't understand that Zion was one of the peaks in the mountain where Jerusalem is. It's not the whole thing. The other one is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the other peak, and that's where uh, Abraham offered Isaac. And so these two kind of twin peaks that become a mountain, there's Zion and Moriah together, and Jerusalem encompasses encompasses that. We hang our harps upon the willow in the midst thereof. For they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they say, How shall we sing when the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, for I prefer not Jerusalem above my for I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it even to the foundations thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art thou to be destroyed? Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That's a pretty emotional and pretty powerful psalm. Let it be our call to worship today to remember that God came to a real earth and a real city, in a real country, that it's not the colored pages of a child's book, but that there are real stones and real sand and real suffering, real difficulty and pain that labor pains really that brought forth God into the world as a man. One of the things I saw that was uh, beautiful and painful at the same time was a relief from Babylon. And it was a relief basically they like to, uh, Jacob they like to write in the stones they would carve out something that happened so you could sort of see it. And there are two things I saw in reliefs that were carved that were so painful but also exciting on the, B- the Babylonians carved a thing on the wall showing them picking up the children from the streets of Jerusalem and from Israel and putting them on their horses and bringing with them the stuff that they would use to garden and to farm and to start a new civilization in Babylon. Not only is this powerful archaeological evidence of the truth that they indeed were taken captive, but it wasn't found in Israel, it was found in the kingdom of Babylon where they were taken in addition to that, they, another time when the city was raised after, of course, Christ lived in A.D. 70, there's also a relief done by the Romans on a pillar, and maybe many, many of you have seen it. It is, it. it is a pillar like the Ark to Triumph in, uh, out there in France, and at the top of it, this is actually in Rome. It's pictures of them carrying uh, the holy things from the Temple of Jerusalem in their hands as they are sacking the city. These things really happened. And many times I think that in the same way that people are guilty of making the silly ark and putting the giraffe necks out the side as though they were, you know, as big as the ark and, and making a kid's story out of it, I think we forget that Jerusalem, that Israel, is a real place. And it's a real place that I think it would do a whole lot of us good to see in person. And I'm so thankful I did. Uh, it, it, it's going to affect me for a long time. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love You and we thank You, Lord. We thank You that there are stones to bear witness, Lord, of what You have done in the earth, that as they might praise You, Lord, what they would say is that they were there. That they saw when You walked those streets, they saw when You healed the lame and the blind, and when You raised the dead, and they saw when You forgave those who railed against You. And Lord, we pray today, Lord, that we would be as those stones would be. We would, in their stead, praise You for what You have done. Lord, as we come into Your presence today, we long to hear Your voice. And we know that You will speak to us, Lord. Lord, we know that we need Your forgiveness and we are so overjoyed that You have unburdened us from the consequences of our sins. Lord, change us, make us more like you, feed us from heaven today. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. My sermon today is called The Liturgy of Geography. I know it's a little bit of a strange title, but you'll understand it better here in just a minute. Genesis chapter 15, starting out in verse 12, says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs. And they shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And After that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they that come out with great substance and Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace thou shalt be buried in a good old age But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full And it came to pass that when the sun went down that it was dark behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces and in the same day The Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Let us pray. Lord, I pray today, Lord, as we look into uh, your word and to the geography of Israel and how it speaks to us, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. Lord, that we would see what you have been doing in the world, and what you are continuing to do, Lord, and that we would not only see it in your words and in the deeds that you have done, but we would see it in the very mountains, the very lakes and streams that you have made, the very uh, land that you have created under our feet. In Christ's name, we pray. And all the church said, "Amen." Amen. You may be seated. First of all, I'd like to say, if I haven't already said it to you all, a lot. Uh, Thank you so much for giving me the great privilege to serve as your pastor here, and uh, thank you for making it possible for me to visit the Holy Land. It's a dream I've had for most of my life, and um, it's a prayer that my church will bear great fruit in this life and the life of our church, and I hope today's message will be a first fruit of that. You know, getting to do wonderful things is one thing. But getting to do them um, the way that I got to do it is another. Um, when I go places and I talk to people, and when I tell people that our church uh, lovingly sent me to Israel, they go, "Huh, oh, that's really sweet. And I think that they have a small inkling of what it means to me, but I don't think they really have uh, a true understanding. There, there have been a lot of years laboring with this church uh to live to the place where the church uh is taking care of me and my family and providing good things for us that was, there was a lot of years of that it's kind of like with your children when they're little at first you are taking care of them and then when they get older they take care of you and it's a great wonderful thing that the thing when you you work for god what does god say he will do for you If you give up houses and you give up land and you give up things in this life, fathers, mothers, brothers, what will he give you in return in this life? He'll give you all that stuff. I can prove it. I can prove it by my life that giving my life away to the Lord has made me uh, probably the richest man I know. And part of that, I've just become a whole lot richer, Jason. Uh, Going to Israel was pretty great. Now, first off, I'd like to say God is sovereign. Everybody say God is sovereign. sovereign. Now, what I mean by this and what the doctrine of God's sovereignty says is that God is in charge, that He rules. But even more than that, He's in charge of history and always has been. It's not just that He's a king on a throne telling people what to do and they do or don't do it, but God is sovereign. He's in charge. Everything that has been and everything that will be and everything that is right now, God is is bringing to pass as part of something God is doing. God is sovereign. God determines what happens when it happens and where it happens. Everybody say, where it happens. If a president gets elected, God is not surprised by this outcome. He ordained it. God does not work with what hand he is dealt and make the best of it. God deals the hand. He sets up when something will happen exactly to the day into the minute into the second and where it takes place. He not only does this on big picture things, somehow he does it everywhere all the time. Sometimes, Becky, I'll watch little ants. I saw some ants in Israel in, this, uh, in the desert and I'm watching them come and go and I'm like, somehow God's in charge of that. That's an amazing thing to me, that God cares about that. It says he does, right? He notices when a sparrow falls to the ground, when one of the hairs from our head falls to the ground. And so, God, as the confession tells us, God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Now, we're not going to deal with this whole doctrine in full today, but I'm bringing it up because it's one of those things that geography teaches. God is a grand storyteller, He creates the backstory, literally creates the backdrop of geography and god is using everything every little part of this to tell a story to those who can hear it so not only did jesus come and they recorded his words but he was in real life in a real place in a real town somewhere doing it and all of that was saying something too i have believed this for quite some time but my trip to israel has honestly put this truth on the forefront of my mind i wanted to share a little bit of how this was happening in me as I was walking the shores of Galilee, ascending the mountains of the Bible and scanning the deserts and valleys that I've read about my whole life. I was looking for God there and I found Him doing what He always does. What does God do? He teaches us. And what is He teaching us about? Him. He's teaching us to bring glory to Him. And when you're there... Over and over, you will have these moments, I did, where you just go, God is so big. He's so great. He's so marvelous. Wow. And I thought, you know, Stephen, I've studied God's Word. I read it. I talk about it. I've looked into the original this and that, and I've studied it and held it upside down and learned about this and learned about that. But it was something else to get to see something I've never seen. I was looking for God there, and I found Him. God is speaking to us in everything. he has placed in our lives if we will look and hear, we will see god as at work around us you know god put you in clarks lake to speak to you he put me where ridgeway and ballot come together to speak to me he puts you in the neighborhood there at mount sterling to speak to you god put all of that there to speak to you about him Now, first of all, I'll tell you why I made the passage of Genesis 15, our text today, because in it, we read God's promise to Abraham concerning the land that he was going to give as a possession to his children and his children's children. He didn't just say, follow me and good things will happen. He said, let me tell you what I'm giving you. If you remember reading in that very last verse in Genesis 15 of our passage, he said, I'm going to give you all the land from that great river in Egypt. Anybody know the name of that great river in Egypt? There's one great river in Egypt that flows north. It's one of the only rivers on planet Earth that flows north. That's right, the Nile. And from the Nile River to the Euphrates, which is mentioned in the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That great river Euphrates there goes all the way over to halfway through the country of Iraq. And the boundary, if you looked at it, is way, way bigger than Israel is right now. In fact, it goes all the way from Kuwait to Iraq, Jordan, Syria, Israel, down to Egypt, all the way up to Lebanon. It's a huge area, and the Jews only possessed a little bit of it throughout their lifetimes. Now, if you remember, God sent Abraham out of Ur, a city many miles east of where he would end up, and he told him to go and let God lead him to a city whose builder and maker was God. Now, he was praying for, and God eventually is going to lead him to the new Jerusalem, you know, which we saw in our reading today out of Revelation chapter 21. But Abraham made it to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem at the time when Abraham went through there, it wasn't called Jerusalem, it was called Jerusalem. Salem and we know that one of the kings of Salem was named Melchizedek and he was a king and he was a priest but before Abraham ever was able to live there that city was there and this city even though it seemed like some weird city that the Jebusites end up living there after this time and it's not until King David uh, takes it and conquers it and puts his uh, palace in there Uh, that it becomes this city of our God. But as we also read in our reading from the Old Testament, as Jeff read for us, David uh, told God, and God said, I have, I wasn't, you know, you didn't have a king at first, but I gave you a king. And you didn't have a place before, but now I gave you a place. And I have chosen Jerusalem to be my holy city. Now, I'm not a, you know, I don't go following after the wooden fragments of the cross. You know? I'm not superstitious. But when God names a city and says it's His holy city where He's going to put His name in it, and He mentions it over and over in prayers that we are supposed to pray from the book of Psalms ourselves, it kind of changes things just a little bit. Now to me, it's not that important exactly where this happened or that happened or what's changed or you know, what really may or may not be or whatever. I don't know. I can't undo all of that but there's really something about being where Jesus was. And if you love him and you love his word and you know it, you're looking around and you're going, you know, I was looking for something that would be, Elizabeth, so I was looking for something that would be like it was when Jesus was there. You know, there's a lot of things that, that are still like they are when Jesus was there. Now, you won't find that necessarily in Jerusalem. Who knows what was there, right? How many times it's been torn down and built up and torn down and sacked and destroyed and whatever. I don't know. Lots of times. But when you go to the Sea of Galilee and uh, there's nothing there but rocks and trees and the sea itself. I even got to late at one night, Steve went down and they have, they've turned, Derek, the Sea of Galilee into like a boardwalk you know, and, and I don't know, it's kind of a little thing but, it, but it's Tiberius, you know, it was a Roman city at the time of Jesus anyway. And, and uh, they turn it into this boardwalk and there's, there's you know, uh, ice cream shops and uh, whatever, and and there's restaurants, and and I was there by myself one night, and um, I noticed that people when they were getting done eating, they were kind of flicking their food over the edge of the rail, and then I'm watching fish, and I'm like, I'm totally looking at fish from the Sea of Galilee right now, <laughs> right now. I'm like, there could be a coin in one of their mouths, you know. <laughs> uh, these could be, these are definitely great, 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 great grandchildren of some of the fish that were caught by Jesus, you know, and Peter and. And, and these guys, you know, and, and I know that sounds really funny, but but it's exciting. It's funny what happens inside of you. So things happen inside of, happen inside of me. But while Abraham was alone, still with no son, no child, God promised him that his children and his children's children would inherit a specific land. And he names this river, right? And he names two rivers. Now, these rivers have probably changed a little bit of their course over time, but God literally set the boundary like uh, a surveyor, and said, this is yours. And he picked a spot on the earth. Why did God do that? Well, I'll tell you what. If you want to get into the why, you'll have to ask God. But when you go there, you'll, you'll get the idea that maybe you know why God picked the spot that he picked. And I think he picked the spot that he picked because it's a grand stage. And I mean, it really is. It's very evident that God made every hill and every valley for his glory, and he picked this very spot. To reveal His Son. Now I talked about my my title being Liturgy Through Geography. Liturgy basically means our worship and, and what we learn through what we do. I'll give you an example of liturgy. We come over every week and we break the bread. We're doing an action which is worship to the Lord. But what is it teaching us? What is it reminding us?
1: That Christ's body was
0: broken. right? And that our very life, the bread of life, the thing that makes us living, the picture of bread, you know there that, that there's enough nutrients in bread for you to live off of that? All by yourself, all by itself. And that the wine, and, and do you see how when we drink the wine, when we eat the bread, we're, we're doing something that is teaching us and we're learning through what we're doing. When when uh, Brother Andy takes and reads the New Testament reading and he walks down the center of the church and everybody stands up and, and we follow him. What are we learning? We're learning that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the center of of what Foundation Church is built on. We're not built on this sideline item. We're not built on this uh, little distinction that makes us a little different. What we should be built on and what we should be focused on in the center of our world is what the story of Jesus and what He has come to do. The Word made flesh that dwelt among us. And so geography, though, is also the study of land. And so how do liturgy and geography to go together. What I'm trying to say is that the very hills and mountains that Jesus walked, the very lake that He went out on to fish with His disciples, was a liturgy. It was an instruction to us as He did it. Geography is a study of where a country is, where its mountains and rivers and cities are, and what they're like, a fertile plain, a desert, a wetland. Now, as the heavens declare the glory of God, I say so does the earth. More specifically, the land of Israel, the land that God chose for a home for the children of Israel and their enemies as well as the land where His Son would be born. I believe understanding this land can help us to know God and worship Him with better understanding. I would absolutely recommend every believer. In fact, I know it's money, Money keeps us from doing some of these things. I just would recommend every believer on planet Earth. If it, I just can't imagine why we all... I, I just can't imagine that when we're born, we don't set as a life's goal to go there. I just don't know why we don't do it. I, we do other things that we think are important. But I believe every believer ought to try to say, okay, you know what? I want to see this place. The land will speak to you. It spoke to me. And I know... Every time I open the Bible, every story I read from here on out is going to be different to me. I'll understand it better. I'll go, yeah, let me, t- let me tell you what you don't know. Why? I went everywhere, just so you know. Your pastor's crazy. <laughs> I drove everywhere all over that country. If I showed you with a thread and I showed you where we went, you would think that's not possible. Nobody could do that. Well, we did it. We went from Dan to Beersheba, from the desert to the land of Philistia, to Jerusalem, to the Valley of Elah, to Nazareth, to Capernaum, to Mount Hermon. To, we went everywhere. We did. Did, did we not, boys? And if, if the Bible talks about a place, I can tell you right now, I probably know where that place is now, and I will never forget it. Why? Because I saw it. I mean, you don't forget where Caesarea Philippi is if you go there, Right? You're like, oh, you don't forget where Mount Hermon is. I mean, when I ever heard him say Mount Hermon before, I'd be like, what is that? Mount Gilboa, you know, Mount Carmel. Like, it's just some place in an imaginary land somewhere. But no, it's not. It's a real place. And God was speaking when he made it. The land. When I was there, a man said to me, he said, imagine teaching French literature, not knowing the language or ever having visited France. I was like, yikes. I'm teaching Hebrew literature never having been to Israel and not even knowing how to speak Hebrew myself. I'm not saying I shouldn't be here and I shouldn't be doing it. What I'm saying is, is at the very least, don't you think maybe a guy who teaches about it his whole life should go there? Mm-hmm. So we settled that problem. I'm not selling you for the trip next year. I already went. <laughs> but I would like to go back several times. So anyway, so... <laughs> Now, me telling you a story about something that happened on my grandfather's mountain is one thing, and you've heard a few of my stories, right? What do you think it's like for my cousins, though, when we retell the story? They can smell it. They can see it. They can feel it in a way you and I cannot. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go to Israel to be saved or anything like that, but I am saying that all of us who say God is the very first thing in our lives. Those who love his word might consider what going to the land where all of the stories of God's work took place might be worthwhile. Now, my understanding and teaching, I can tell you right now, will be forever changed. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that that happened to me on the trip that affected the way I think. And as soon, soon as I open the Bible and I start teaching on the next thing I'm teaching on, you'll see it. You'll be like, is he ever going to stop talking about it? No, probably won't. Because I go, oh, no, no, no let, let me explain to you. Let me explain to you. When they say so-and-so came from, let me, I, I, I can tell you what they're talking about. You know, oh, no, you got to understand this is here and this. I mean, you think I was pointing at the stained glass up here. We just may put a map right up here on the wall. You know, I don't know. So back to the first thing I want to talk to you about. I I started to talk about it. I talked to you about sovereignty. The land of Israel is uniquely situated. You really have to be there to fully understand what I mean. But it's a place like no other place in the world. And I've been around a few places. Now, it's a stage in the theater where an elaborate play is taking place because it really was. Now, this is the hard thing we sort of have to get. God could tell his story anywhere on the earth he wanted to. And guess where he picked That place. Now, when you read about this, like when you hear Jesus talking about let your light so shine and you find out that he said it, the last day of the Feast of Lights, it kind of makes it mean a little bit more, right? Or this thing happens and he goes, if any man come unto me, you know, let him, any man that thirsts, let him come unto me, right? And you find out that that's on the day, the last day of the feast where they don't bring the water from the Pool of Siloam into the temple and there's no water and Jesus is saying, I'm that water and that Pool of Siloam is the Pool of Messiah. It makes a whole lot more sense, the things that you hear Jesus saying and doing. And folks, no one needed to explain it to the people that were there. No one had to go, do you really see what he's trying to say here? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, uh, really? And it would be like trying to say that you had to explain to a person in Columbus, Ohio, have you ever heard of the Buckeyes? They play a game called football. <laughs> yeah. Everybody would know what you're talking about, you know, you, you know, you'd hear bum bum bum, bum, bum. you like, yeah, yeah, I know what that means, right? These guys were looking at it, they were seeing it, it was so in their face obvious, but it's not for us because we don't know these things. The Mediterranean Sea is a wall or a barrier to the west, a, a mountain range, a river, and two large bodies to the east. This This contrast, this Bobbling in of Israel in between these things is pretty, pretty intense. There's a great desert in the south. And at the confluence of some of the most important trade routes in all of the world. Its land varies from total desert to fertile plain, from snow-capped mountains to warm seas. It's all there. This is one of the most amazing things for me. You can literally, like we were at Acre, which is on the, on the Mediterranean, and it was so like I almost felt guilty like it's so beautiful that I felt bad that that like I'm, I'm, I'm looking at these Mediterranean waters and they're warm and I just want to like sit underneath a thing and by the lapping of the water you know kind of a thing in this old city of Acre you know I'm like but there's all these biblical sites I want to see but in an hour you can drive over and you can be on a mountain with snow isn't that crazy and in the middle you'll have this giant fertile plain or you'll have this or that you can be to everything that's totally, completely different, just like that. We were in the city of Jerusalem, and uh, you're really not supposed to leave Jerusalem and go uh, west or, or go east from Jerusalem. You're not supposed to do it because the West Bank kind of engulfs the city of Jerusalem like this, and everything to the east is all West Bank. Okay, West Bank is something that's controlled by the, the Palestinians, the Muslims. Uh, and they're not super friendly to, well, they want to kill the Jews. Most of them do. And the Christians are not super welcome either. But I really, 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 really wanted to go to Jericho. I really wanted to kind of see what that was like over there. And so we accidentally, I think we got stuck on this road and then we were out there, you know? So, so you go through this tunnel and, and you and you've been from Jerusalem all the way to the sea, you've been in this giant fertile land. That's just kind of amazing. Just bursting with agriculture and everything. And as soon as you go out of the tunnel and you come out on the other side of Jerusalem, you're in a totally different land. Like, imagine that. You're driving through Columbus, and it's all one thing, and you go through a tunnel, and you come out, and you're, like, in another country. Like, it's, it looked that extreme. Did it not, boys? I mean, next thing you know, you see, like, you know, a guy riding a donkey with, like, camels following him around. You know, you're like, whoa, this is neat. I've never seen a, an actual camel just walking around, you know, in the desert where it's supposed to be. Uh, I mean, they're always, you know, at, at a, a gas station, you know, and then you can ride them around or at, a, at the zoo or something like that. You can pay five dollars and whatever. But and they had one of those, too. We there was an actual camel. And this was probably the most depressed camel in the history of all mankind. He's in Israel at a, at a gas station and you can ride him for five bucks. You know, It's like it's got to be depressing. But you go from one string to another uh, extreme to another. When we were in Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee, someone had taken a truck up to Mount Hermon and loaded it with snow, and they had, and, and so it was like warm enough to swim and to want to get in the water there at the Sea of Galilee, and they had these giant piles of snow from Mount Hermon, uh, and people were playing in them. I've never seen anybody do that, uh, but it's you know kind of hot there, and 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 we're there, and they and everyone's throwing snowballs and playing. But but we're on the Sea of Galilee, and as we're there, you can look up. And you can see this giant snow-capped mountain in the background, kind of like floating, more like a cloud. You know? and I didn't, did, did any of you know that that's what Jesus looked at every day when he lived there? I didn't realize that, that it was like that. That here he was in this, this, this lake, this valley with mountains surrounding him, but then this huge mountain way off in the distance, way up in the sky. I, I had no idea. So this mountain, though, was within walking distance. In the ancient day, not we wouldn't call it walking distance in the ancient day, brother. Pastor Nang has explained to me that he's actually from the ancient days almost. Uh, And so I asked him, what's a normal distance for someone to walk back when he was growing up? And he said 50 miles in a day was a normal walk. You know, like uh, you get up real early and if you were on your way somewhere, you could cover 50 miles. Now, that's kind of crazy, right? Well, it's probably less than 50 miles to Mount Hermon from the Sea of Galilee. Many places in Israel, you can go up on a high place and you can almost see the whole country in every direction. It's like this flat table with these, with these, uh, these, these dots of, uh, of things, of mountains popping up here and there. And when you go up on these mountains, you can see everything. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It was amazing to stay on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the other things that I saw, uh, that I read in the Bible, um, this this Mount Hermon. Now, the Bible does not tell us what, what where the trans Mount of Transfiguration was, but uh, we had just been we had just visited Nazareth, and someone had said, "Don't go there. There's nothing to see." Well, it was kind of on the way, and I'm like, you know, the Bible does call him Jesus of Nazareth, so maybe we should see it. And I thought, well, it'll be you know like a because Israel, a lot of Israel is modern city. You're like going. Oh, no, like I've not come to Bible land. it's like, you know, I'm in Gallipolis or something like that, you know, and you're just going to, oh, you know, so, so we leave the area where there was a lot of this industrial stuff and we drive through there. And when we get to Nazareth, if you're, if you're not real confident in your driving, it would send terror in your heart. Like the roads were so narrow that you had to pull your mirrors in to make it between them. And they were for cars going both directions. Okay. So you had to do a lot of, but so we got to go to the actual uh, synagogue where Jesus declared he was the son of God. It's still there, See. And we went in there, and some guy came and opened it up, and and uh, it was it was locked, and they, he let us in there, and we could go in there and spend a little bit of time. But so, but why, when we left Nazareth, we were coming out, and we're driving down the road, and I'm looking over, and I'm seeing this bubble like come out of the earth, like it's one of the strangest looking mountains I've ever seen. It literally looks like like a bubble of water was trying to come up out of the earth and it just formed this perfect round thing. Now imagine like, you know, all the land's flat. And then it just looks like almost looks like a created, like a person made it, you know, and on the top of it, I noticed that there was this thing and I'm like, that's gotta be somewhere. You know, I don't know what that is, but that's gotta be something in the Bible, you know, and it, it ended up being Mount Tabor, which is what many people believe is the Mount of Transfiguration. So we had to drive around it. We went up it. And when we got up there, we're looking. And I'll tell you what. There was a valley that stretched in every direction of fertile land. It it was just really unbelievable. And we found out that this is the valley called the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel is bordered on the other side of the valley by Mount Gilboa and a place called Megiddo which is what they call Armageddon. So this is the valley where the last battle of the earth was supposed to take place. And we're, we're, we're looking at all these things, and we're, we're, we're trying to say, oh, okay, I, I can see how all the armies of the earth could actually fit in here. People, A lot of people who don't understand population, you know how we talk about the earth being filled, Jonathan, there's too many people in it. You know how this is kind of what we talk? I learned a few years ago, and, and maybe it's a different town, but a few years ago, I learned that the entire population of the Earth can fit inside of Jacksonville, Florida. Did you guys know this? All all the billions of people on Earth could fit inside of Jacksonville, Florida, if they were all they could all literally stand there in that town together. Isn't that amazing? So so, but obviously, they're they're not going to do that. Uh, but but in the Valley of Jezreel, if you imagine tanks and some huge battle or whatever, you could easily put uh, all the armies of the world in this one this giant valley but but what i was saying is that mount people say mount tabor was the mount of transfiguration they believe that jesus walked there and that he went to the top of this mountain and that's where you know elijah and moses and, and peter james and john were there with him but when i read that story i remember reading the story in the bible and i remember trying to look up where it was and i remember saying that doesn't make any sense you know now the bible doesn't say it's mount tabor The Bible said he goes up into a high mountain. And so I've wanted to know where it took place. Now, not because I'm going to go there and somehow touch a rock, you know, and get tuned into something. But, but, you know, I wanted to understand Jesus, the lesson he was teaching his disciples. And so so, we're we're in Galilee, and we had just gone to Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor has a great view, and it's on this valley. But it's really the other way. And Jesus would have to climb this big cliff thing in Galilee. And... And I'm just looking at it all, and it's just kind of not making sense. And I'm sitting there, uh, and I'm looking on the Sea of Galilee, and I kept looking up and seeing this big mountain with a snow cap on it. And I'm like, you know, if I was Jesus, this is what I thought, Andy. If I was Jesus, and I was going to take people to the Mount of Transfiguration, I would take them up there. I mean, you can see this mountain from everywhere. You can see it from everywhere. It's huge. It's way higher than the rest. It's in the Golan Heights, way up high. And I hadn't really, you know, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not Jesus, obviously. I don't understand things like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm not the scholar of the universe about every original thought and theory about what, where the Mount of Transfiguration. And so since the Greek Orthodox Church built this church up on Mount Tabor, maybe it really was. I don't know. Right. But I'm sitting there and it's kind of kind of eating at me, you know, like if Jesus was gonna take his disciples anywhere, and and, and so I'm like, well, where did he start? So I I get out the Bible one night, Andy, I'm like, we're on this mountain in the middle of nowhere, which is pretty funny. If you rent on like Airbnb, you can't end up in some strange places. (laughs) And uh, there is this mountain peak, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And it takes a long time to get there. And you can see that there's like a few houses on top of it. And we didn't know it, but we were going there. And so we get there, and around it is a giant fence with razor wire all around it. it. looks like we're driving ourselves into a prison, okay? And I'm like, certainly we're not staying here, right? And we ended up being in the smallest Jewish settlement in Israel, where there's only five Jewish families, and everybody else is Muslim and Palestinian. So, so once you get in the gate, you know, you're safe in there. Uh, but outside the gate, maybe not so much. So, so anyway, so, uh, so, so we're there. And I stay up all night long. I get out my Bible. I'm like, I'm like, we're we're right by the mount. We're right by Mount Hermon. We'd driven way up there to see Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon's supposed to be the most beautiful place in Israel. You guys know, right? We quote about it, right? Remember the verse? Come on, right? How pleasant, how good it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, right? It's like the do of what? Do of Hermon. And so I'm like, I want to go to see this place. Well. Herman definitely has dew. It has dew and it has snow and it has rain and it has water. And the, the, the water from Herman waters everything. It's way up in the clouds. It's totally covered in moisture and it causes waterfalls. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So, so this has really bothered me. I'm just like, man, I would totally go to Mount Herman if I was Jesus. Like, that would have to be the place. And, and, and I didn't realize there were any theories or whatever. I hadn't read about this, but going there made me think about it. And so, so on the way there, I hear that there's this really neat thing called Banias Springs that, that uh, you can see, or Banna Springs. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but uh, it has these waterfalls, and I like waterfalls. And, it, and there's this place called Caesarea Philippi. And they say Caesarea Philippi is where Peter has had his encounter with the Lord, where he said, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter says What? Yeah, you're right. I believe you're Christ, the Son of God. You're the Messiah. That's who I believe you are. And Jesus says to him, that's right, Peter. And upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So as I'm reading about the life of Jesus, I'm seeing that Jesus fed the, the multitudes. And after he fed the multitudes in Capernaum, which is where, basically where I was, the next place he went was Caesarea Philippi, which is where I was going. Now, I was only going to see the waterfall and what else ever might be up there, not fully understanding what was going to be there. So we go in to see the of spring, and there is the original temple of Pan, this god that where the word panic comes from because he's this horribly frightening, half man, half goat, uh, horrible, horrible person that sends people into terror because he's so frightening. And they had built this altar to Pan at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And in there, there were these other gods. And so there are like these three um, little temples in the side of this mountain. And they would take their sacrifices and they would offer them to their gods. And they would go in this cave. And there's this river in this cave that would take their sacrifices and just, you know. And there was some point in history, they would would take people back in that cave. And they would throw them in there. And they would be gone in this dark river, never to be seen again. On this pretty scary place. Guess what they called that place? They called it the Gates of Hell. So I'm 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 listening to the story of uh, I'm reading it and I'm reading the story of Peter and Jesus and I'm reading what he says and I'm and I had just been to the Temple of Pan and I just learned all about it and just watched it and I'm looking at it and I'm like so this is where Jesus went next. So I'm like wait a minute, Mount Hermon's just right around the hill here, you know, and so the 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 so I don't know but I I looked it up and I found out that there are a lot of people that think that maybe Mount Hermon was the Mount of Transfiguration. So for whatever it's worth, I think it might've been, but, but it, but God set all of these things up, however he did them and wherever he did them, he did them as a, an illustration of, of what he was doing in the world. He put Mount Hermon there floating in the sky, almost like a cloud. He put it there. He built it, you know, thousands of years ago in preparation for the day of the coming of Christ You know, when when I think about God's sovereignty, I ask myself this question. How do people who do not believe in God's sovereignty account for the fact that Christ was crucified on the day of Passover when the Lamb was crucified? How would they work that up? How How could he guarantee that he was going to be killed in Jerusalem? How could they make it happen on that exact day? Like, God isn't just working with what he's got. This was the day. This was the appointed time. As Galatians says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. God set a time, and he set a place. Now tell me, those who believe that God's just working with whatever happens to happen, how do they explain that? Because he doesn't. God is sovereign over every single detail. I visited Mount Carmel near the Mediterranean, it vaults upward in northern Israel from a flat coastline and offers a view in every direction. You can certainly understand why the prophets of Baal went up there. I learned more about Baal. Baal was the god of the Canaanites, and I understood that he was their god. I didn't really fully understand what what it meant, why they would have him. Baal is kind of a strange god. He is the god of storms. And Nathaniel was explaining to me that Thor, like Thor, the Norse God, right? Is he a Norse God? Yeah. Uh, is that, and, and that, and I was trying to understand, like, of all the things to be gods of, what's the big deal? Well, in Israel, it's quite a big deal. The rain comes there sporadically, and when it comes, they say how it comes is the most important thing. So you know what it's like. Imagine you've had no rain for a really long time, Right? So it rains really, really hard. What's gonna to happen to all that water? It's gonna rush off, there's gonna be flash floods, people are gonna die, and all the water's gonna be gone. And is, there, is it gonna help the ground at all, make it ready for planting? Nope. But if a gentle rain comes and rains down beautifully and softly over days at a time, and the, round, the ground becomes soggy and wet and ready for planting, that's good, right? And so Baal worship was the main worship of these Canaanites. And we visited many of these Canaanite cities, and they had erected their, uh, their temples, their, 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 this calf, you know, which is what, what the Israelites ended up building, this golden calf, which is basically Baal, right? And then we have Jesus, of course, calming the storms. And we have all kinds of things happening in the Bible that for us, might not be so intuitive. Like, I mean, if I was gonna make a god of something, would it be of a calf? No, well, it was Baal. They were worshiping Baal. And so you learn a lot in the land about who these people were, and what they were, and what it was about. Anyway, so from Jericho, 10 miles or so, the land of Canaan was certainly a land that flowed with milk and honey. Once you reach the high plateau of Jerusalem, it runs all the way to the Mediterranean. It's like an entirely new world. And I talked to you about that already. Um, so without the doctrine of sovereignty how can we say that God picked a place so that he planned a time and he set the stage we can't but we know he did now we happen to be in Israel during the Passover and I really you you might think I planned it that way but I didn't plan it that way I was really I, I looked at the calendar of when Easter was in America and I said, I don't want to go then because there'll be three billion tourists, and I'll be like you know swimming in a sea of humanity. And I'd like to go when nobody is there. That was my goal, okay? But God, you know, men men have their plans, and God has His own plan, right? Because it happened to be Passover, and it happened to be Easter in Jerusalem for the Orthodox Church, and being there for that was quite uh, an unexpected pleasure. Um, we saw some remarkable things we'll never forget. Um, so I'm trying to think of what to tell you because I'm, and I I'm, I know this is not normally what I do in our church, but uh, it is what I'm doing right now. So so here, here they were, and I never really expected to see in Jerusalem what Jews saw in Jerusalem. So three times a year, God had set up pilgrimage feast for people to travel where? To Jerusalem. So I hadn't really expected to see that. I was hoping that they all wouldn't be there, but they were. And so imagine walking up and down through there and seeing people from Egypt and people from, you know, uh, China and people from Greece and people from Italy. And they all look different and they're all wearing different clothes. They're all speaking different languages and they're all in one place all together. I didn't know that was going to happen, but I'm like, hey, this, this seems very familiar to a few stories I've heard. Maybe like the one on the day of Pentecost, right? And, um, as you know, I, I, I'm watching these people. And, and I used to, uh, I used to, I used to five minutes ago, um, <laughs> make, kind of, kind of, kind of make fun of, kind of be exasperated at how stupid people are. Um, Whenever you do that, you should really maybe stop and think of how stupid you might be. Um, I went to the Church of Holy Sepulcher, and there were these people, and they were just like kissing and touching this slab where they put the body of Jesus before he was taken to the tomb. And I'm, I'm not for icons, and I'm not for relics. But who doesn't want to touch where Jesus lay? I went in the garden tomb and I don't know if that's the tomb of Christ but it was a tomb that a rock rolled in front of in a garden and that's the kind of place very close to where Jesus was crucified and I went in there and I'm like this is kind of making this a little for real right here for a minute and I thought you know maybe I've been a little too hard on some of these people and I started to look around and, and maybe I'll just, I, I, maybe I just need to stop with this and just talk to you from my heart for a minute. I encountered something very beautiful in Israel I did not expect. And it made me miss all of you. Do you know what there were all over Israel, Steve, Stephen? There were like whole Churches. And they would go where Jesus broke the loaves of fishes and they would get together under a little deal over there. And they would sing a song. I'm like, wow. We, we first started seeing this, Andy, on the plane. We're like, look at all these Chinese people in New York City. They're wearing this red hat. And, and they're all smiley. And, and, and we're like, and they're from a church in Florida, some Chinese kind of church, I don't know, in Florida. And they're going to the Holy Land. There's like 200 of them. Jason, they couldn't have been more glad to be together and to be going there. And I'm like, huh. But then it was, then we encountered a group from France, and then on the walls of Jerusalem, I encountered a man with his father. His dad's always wanted to see the Holy City. And he's bringing his dad, and they're walking slowly on the walls of Jerusalem together. And I'm just thinking, they love our Lord. I saw Coptic Christians from Egypt, and and yes, they look different, and I'm sure they believe weird things. I I saw them gathered in uh, the the. Cathedral of St. Stephen on the rock where they believed Stephen was stoned to death and he called on the Lord. And and I saw that they had painted murals around the wall of this of of what happened to Stephen. And then I'm in there, Tim, and I'm looking and I look up on this ceiling that's plaster and there's just a little circle with a face. And I can't read the language, but I know who that is. He saw his master in the sky. And called on him to say. And you know what? I have ignorantly made fun of these people. And I'm not saying I want to build a place like that. But I think it's easy to make fun of and belittle and ignorantly put people in a category different from you. And being in Israel, help me with that. I shared a, a, a waterfall experience in, in Getty with what was definitely some sort of somebody that wasn't like me. Probably a Muslim, maybe an Armenian Christian. I don't know what they were, but they were holding hands and they were kissing their children and they were playing in the water just like me. And I encountered these groups of believers everywhere. These people from Korea. These people from the Philippines. This sweet, this sweet girl from the Philippines. We were, we were in the, the uh, we were in a synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus and Peter taught over and over again. And <clears throat> the boys were, you know, they thought I was a little silly because they have this statue of Peter over there. You know, he's holding a fish. You know, whatever. I don't know. And I might want to get my picture in and by the statue and i go over there and they're not there to take a picture of me it's kind of too big and this little filipino woman she comes over and she's like Get up. she goes can i have selfie with you she she thinks i'm american i'm like yeah I, I am american oh i want to take picture with you and you know our people delivered them from the japanese and and our people brought christ to the Philippines. And I was realizing that we were in a place, in a city of the world that could unite Christians. And of course, there's a division. In fact, there's some very silly things going on (laughs) in Jerusalem. I didn't know anything about it. How many of you guys know what holy fire is? Have you even heard of it? You are really missing out on some silly stuff. Do you know that Christians around the world by the tens of millions believe that inside the tomb... That the priest goes in there on the day before Easter and his candles spontaneously are lit by God. Have you ever heard this in all your life? It's got to be one of the silliest things I've ever heard. But it's not silly to them, I can tell you that. We got caught in the crossfire of the holy fire coming out of the sepulchre. And people were jamming the city to be near it, to be it. And when it out, everybody wants to light their candle off of it. And then everybody lights the candle all over the whole city off of the holy fire. Now, I think it's the silliest thing ever. Goofy as all get out. And the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which may or may not have anything to do with whether Christ was buried or crucified or anything, but they think it might be. Every, all these churches that are millions of these Orthodox people, that, Jason, they're fighting over it. So much so that 800 years ago, they had to give the key to a Muslim family to open it and shut the door because they couldn't agree as Christians on who ought to get the key. And we learned this from an Arab young boy, a Muslim boy. We hung out with him for hours in his shop talking to him. And he goes, he goes, it's a very crazy thing. He goes, I will show you. He goes, do you know who holds the key to the sepulcher? We do. We're the Muslims. He goes, the Christians can't even get along enough to, to let each other in the church. Kind of a funny thing. When I drove around and I saw the the, the Palestinian cities with the the bar- wire and walls and horrible poverty and no wonder they're mad. I don't know. I'm just getting older, and maybe 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 you learn something when you get older and you travel and you see things with your own eyes. I'm for Christ and His church. To be in the holy city of God, to watch the people come together, didn't really make me feel further away from the body of Christ. It made me feel closer. They're all a bunch of nutcases like you. And we're like, well, you know, I'm talking to these Anglicans, and he tells me, he says, you know, we had a group come from Westminster Presbyterian College. And I said, because he was kind of like this when I told him we were Presbyterian. He's like, oh, okay. He didn't know what kind of Presbyterian, but he was scared of us. And and he goes, I said, so they knew everything. He goes, oh, they knew everything. He goes, I live here. I've been to every site. I've studied it my whole life. I speak fluent Hebrew. I knew I could say nothing. These guys would crush me. They knew it all. You know, he thought it was the funniest thing ever. He said, after a while of them, he goes, I'm, I'm like afraid to say anything. They're going to correct me. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And I'm like, I don't really want to fight with them. I just want to show them some holy sights, you know. He said, I think I got to him. I wore him down after a few days. He goes, I had him eaten out of the palm of my hands. Folks, the thing that it made me think of, that my Israel trip made me think of most, is the glory of Christ's kingdom on earth. And instead of seeing our Methodists and our Catholic and our whatever and seeing all of them as these weird, far out, unapproachable, not attached to us, we're the we're the teeny tiny remnant that's got it just right. I really can't imagine that could please God. Now I'm not wanting to kiss an icon of Saint Stephen or find the the, the hair or the bone of you know one of the saints' great. I, I'm not one not to do that. But am I, am I really cherishing what God has given us in the world? Am I really, do, do I, I mean, I'm watching them love and their devotion. And, and I watch these, they're walking down what they call the Via Della Rosa. It's the walk that Christ took. And they're they're walking us and they're just like, oh, we're walking where Jesus walked. And I missed it because I was, I got a little frustrated and, and I took off running down this thing because my, my legs were hurting and I was trying to get somewhere. I was like out of breath and... And Benjamin's like, you missed it. I'm like, what do he say? They say this is where Jesus went on the wall when he fell down and Simon came and carried his cross. They were all touching it. This is that place. I, who knows? But the deal is, is that he did walk on those streets. And these people are coming there for him. And I can tell you right now, if, if God took my sweet wife, I love her like I love nobody but I would want to touch things that she touched and be places that she was. And it's not the worst thing in the world to want to be where our Lord was and to stand where he stood and to walk where he lived and to remember that he came to save the world and that he's doing it. And that he's doing it despite all of our things we got right. I'm sure the Coptics know better than we do and the Orthodox know better than we do. And of course, we, the Presbyterians, we know better than they do. I'm sure. Asked me to tell you about the Armenians and their drums and their kilts and their, their militant Christianity, it was very funny. Very funny, but they weren't laughing. They took it seriously, they're like, this is our city. This is where our Christ walked. You Jews want to go to the Wailing Wall, that's fine. But we're marching in the city today on our one holy fire day. And they've got drums and kilts and bagpipes. And the Jews are pushing their way through. And they're like, hey, buddy, you don't push through our parade today. And there were people raising their fists, And it was pretty funny. And, and these Armenians were little guys. But you got the idea you did not want to go over there and mess with them. And I know they thought I was a Jew because I was wanting them not to beat the Jews up that were coming to the whaling Wall, you know? And I went to help and I'm like, they're all gonna beat me up. That's exactly what's gonna happen right now. There's gonna be an international incident where I get beat up by, not by Armenians, but by Armenians. I wanna be beat up by an Armenian, but, but not an Armenian, okay? <sighs> But being with these men at Christ Church and seeing their love for the Jewish people and their desire to see them saved, Paul said, he said he loved them. He said, if I could even be accursed for my brethren's sake, you know. So I just, I just, I guess I just really never thought of Jerusalem and Israel as a place that exists today. I've always thought of it as a place that used to exist, but it's still there. In the cities and the. The lakes and the towns and the stones are there. One thing I will tell you, I'll, I'll end with this. I have never felt the full weight of the statement where Christ would say, you know, where someone would say, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming to establish a kingdom that will never end, Paul. Never end. You know, if you said that in Mount Sterling, I'd go, that's great, that's awesome but imagine going to a place where there are these things called tells. Now, how many of you know what a TEL is? I've never heard of a TEL. Now, I know there's Tel Aviv and there's Tel, but I didn't understand what it was. But a TEL, Jeff, is where a city is built and then someone comes and they burn it down and they knock it down. And a civilization may have lived there for 500 years, longer than America exists. A civilization lived there and they tore it down and then they built another one on top of it And then 500 years later, they do it again. And so over 5,000 years, city built upon city upon city upon city is this mound. And they're all over Israel. You're driving down the road and it's like Tel Dan is over there. And you're like, Tel Dan? And you go and you see this giant mound and there's a little town on top of the mound. And it is thousands of years worth of kingdoms that have failed. The Ottomans, the Turks, you know, don't, don't, Nathaniel, don't do it. Don't do it, okay? The Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the whateverites, right? You know, crusader cities and and sieges and, and just, you know, all this stuff, the Muslim horde and this and the fighting, all this stuff. It is when you say that this kingdom is coming that will never be destroyed and you're there and you're watching... In Megiddo, where we went to, or the town that they call Armageddon, we went to this town, and it's Tel Megiddo, right? And in Tel Megiddo, they found 24 layers of 24 civilizations, not 24 towns, 24 civilizations that have existed in this one city. They must have a good location, right? Right? Do you know that Jerusalem is built on top of 100 feet of rubble before you get to the first house? A hundred feet of the rubble. of It's the most built and rebuilt and destroyed city on the earth. I didn't know that. We went down. One of the beautiful things, and I'll try to close with this. One of the beautiful things uh, that I saw there is that, that Christians from America and England who bre- believed the Bible and who read their Bible stories, they went to Jerusalem and they said, where did this happen? And they said, we read right here that there was this thing called Hezekiah's well and David took the city by having people swim up through this thing and it's here. And the people are like, eh, that's not there. That's just an old story. And he's like, if it's in the Bible, it's here. Where is it? And they look and they go, oh, you're Goofy. No one would ever do anything like that. And that can't be. And guess what, guys? They found it. And hundreds and hundreds of feet filled with dirt. Someone filled it in. They unfilled it in. And now you can walk down it and go down the stairs and go into the tunnel of Hezekiah. You can go go right in it. And everything is there exactly like the Bible says. Everything. And they're uncovering it. And who's doing it? But Christians. Christians are going to cities they say don't exist. We went, and I remember in my lifetime, them saying Solomon and David didn't exist. They weren't real. Uh-huh. But I, I, I went to three or four archaeological sites where they said these are the stables of King Solomon. This is where King David lived. We have inscriptions. We have evidence. We went to the Bible Lands Museum and to the Israel Museum. And if you want to go and have your faith bolstered, if you're somehow weakening, if you're around some moron who wants to tell you, oh, there's holy books written about all kinds of things. I mean, they don't really know what happened. Say, all right, if you got a little money, why don't you come with me? We're going to go to the Bible Lands Museum in Jerusalem and see, see what you say after you come from there. It is, it is, a, it is a blaring testimony of the faithfulness of god and the accuracy of his word and we ended the last museum we went to we saw the dead sea scrolls andy we saw the entire book of isaiah word for word discovered in the 1940s from and they get out and you know i bet you it was a little nerve-wracking it was a little frightening Is it gonna still be right? Because we've always said God's preserved his word and to get it out word for word, for letter for letter, not only Isaiah, but Jeremiah, Lamentations, every book up practically of the entire Old Testament, right there and other things too. I'd love to read some of that other stuff in there, but they have this thing called the shrine of the book and they're like, "This, this book is historically documented to be accurate, to be exactly as we have believed it has been for thousands of years. Look and see, here it is. folks. What an encouraging thing it was for me. What an encouraging thing. I know it's a little bit different for a Sunday, uh, but have faith in God and know that God is at work and He always has been. He's at work in Ohio, but Ohio isn't Israel. And there is, there are some special places in the world, and all, of course, everywhere you are, are special to God. But there is a holy city, and there is a country where all the stories took place. And it's, it's a real place today. All right, let us pray. Lord, we love you. Lord, as we read in our reading from Revelation 21, Lord, you saw fit to name the holy city coming from the sky, the new Jerusalem. Lord, I'm thankful I got to see the old Jerusalem. I'm looking forward to seeing the new Jerusalem. One thing I remember from Revelation 21 is that there would be no temple there, just like there's not right now. There is no temple there. It was destroyed and it will remain that way. There'll be no need for that. We no longer need to sacrifice animals. We no longer need to shed blood for the remission of our sins because your blood has been shed. Lord, I pray that this trip, Lord, makes me love my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who think differently than I do. That it would erode, that it would assault my pride, that it would bring me low in my arrogance and would cause me to be kinder and more understanding and loving, Lord. Lord, I I was born into a cult, a strangeness, an, an oddity, a denial of the orthodox religions of our faith, but I loved you then. And Lord, there are so many who love you, Lord, who call? Who are you called by your name. And Lord, what a thing to rejoice in today. Lord, you will have your holy will. You will crush the wisdom of man. You will use all this division and what seems like confusion and what seems like impossible disunity. And one day, Lord, you will unite us in all and all as your kingdom rules and reigns on the earth. And somehow, Lord, people that can't even settle on who can have the key to the church, that we have to have the Muslims hold the key. Lord, we are going to be the ones you use to bring to naught the things that are. To crush the head of Satan. Lord, may your name be praised in all the earth. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.